0: This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. This morning we're reading from Isaiah 2, and this is the ESV if you want to follow along. I highly recommend it. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that, we, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in light of the Lord. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains and against all the uplifted hills, against every tower and against every fortified wall, Against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away. And the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man, in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, Emmaus. Couldn't have a more picturesque Sunday, I think. The leaves swirling around, it's like the best temperature ever. We've shifted over to the shade a little bit so we didn't have to toast as much. Um... My plan is to explain a lot of what was just read. Um, For those of you that don't know me, my name is Aaron. I'm our community pastor here and one of the elders. Uh, Cole Baldock is our other elder. He is in Texas with his family right now. Uh, I do want to explain a lot of what was just read. That's my plan, but first I want to start off this week in a way that I have never done. I want to start off this week by confessing that I missed something really important in our introduction to Isaiah last week. And, and this isn't a setup for a joke, I kind of wish it was, but I'm, I'm trying to purposely draw attention to my mistake last week with the hope that it encourages you not to make the same mistake. So, so what did I do? Um, My roommate actually summarized it the best, and I wrote down exactly what he said after he said it. Uh, I was talking to my wife, just kind of about the sermon and and some of the the mistakes that I made, and I could see him out of the corner of my eyes while I'm talking to Bridget. I could see him pull out a little notebook and start staring intently at this notebook, and I'm talking to Bridget, and uh, we stop for a second, and then he looks up and he goes, yeah, I didn't write down anything about Jesus last week. And it was, it was his sermon notes. And he was, he was affirming to me that he didn't write anything specific that I taught about Jesus last week. And that's kind of when, when the mistake really hit me. I preached a summary on the entire book of Isaiah from chapter one that didn't explicitly teach us about the death and resurrection of Jesus. So it was hard to hear what he said, but I needed to hear that. And kind of the more embarrassing part for me is that our church's name is Emmaus Church for a reason. We're persistent in saying that all of the Bible is about the death and resurrection of Jesus. All of the Bible is about the gospel. That's why we're called Emmaus Church. And you can see it on your handout, but if you're not super familiar with that story, the name Emmaus, it comes from uh, the book of Luke. It's a story where Jesus, after his resurrection, is on, on the road walking to a town called Emmaus. And he opens up the Old Testament and he says to his disciples, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, all the prophets, including Isaiah, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is telling the disciples that all of the Old Testament is about his death and his resurrection. I think here we've preached on this a ton of different times. I actually taught uh, an eight week intensive on sort of the idea around what it means to find Jesus in all of scripture. Um, if you're interested, I have books here today that you're welcome to take home with you. But the entire Old Testament is meant to teach us about the death death. And resurrection of Jesus. And if I can stand here on a Sunday and give you an overview of the book of Isaiah, even if I'm using Isaiah chapter one, if I can stand here on a Sunday and give you an overview of the book of Isaiah, and you have nothing to learn about the death and resurrection of Jesus, then, then I've made a big mistake. I haven't actually interpreted the book of Isaiah like Jesus interprets the book of Isaiah. And not just Jesus, his apostles too. Uh, it's on your sheet, I have 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12. It's a, it's a really helpful passage to sort of understand this idea. I kinda wanna walk away from my notes, but I can't because of the wind, so I'll just keep it, keep it here. Um, so we're not gonna pick apart every verse in this passage, but I really want, I really want you to feel the joy, feel the hope, feel the beauty of the gospel that comes out in Peter's letter to the churches look what he says starting in verse three blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ you know he starts it with an exclamation mark according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable Undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And you have to get a sense that Peter is excited about the beauty of the gospel. He talks about this great mercy, rejoicing in Jesus, even though we don't see him, we love him. And he talks about the outcome of your faith, this this inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled and and unfading, the salvation of your souls. So where, where do we find this salvation? Where do we find this beauty? And look at what he says, starting in verse 10. It says, concerning this salvation, the prophets like Isaiah who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours or the salvation that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It's another way to say death and resurrection. Peter right here is just repeating what Jesus said on the road to Emmaus. The prophets knew they were prophesying about the death and resurrection of the Messiah, of Jesus. But they couldn't quite figure it out. So look what God did for, for Isaiah in verse 12. It says, It was revealed to the prophets that they were serving not themselves, but you. But you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. So not only is the book of Isaiah about the death and resurrection of Jesus, it was actually revealed to Isaiah that what he was writing down was meant for you. Think about what Peter is saying. Peter is saying that the book of Isaiah that was written 2,700 years ago was actually written down for you, written down so that you would better understand the death and resurrection of Jesus so that we could better understand the gospel. And honestly, I made the mistake of not making that super clear last week. Um, it's easy to do. I made the mistake of getting kind of caught up in the details of the book, which, which are important, and I, try, I tried to present them clearly. But if, but if you make the mistake of not starting first with the fact that Jesus and his, pop, and his apostles not only say that Isaiah is for you, But they tell us directly that the entire book of Isaiah is about the sufferings and glories of Christ, the death and resurrection of Jesus. So no matter what the details are, Isaiah ultimately is about the death and resurrection of Christ. And I bring up that mistake because we have to focus on the beauty of who Christ is if we wanna see transformation. That's why our vision as a church is, is to see Denver transformed by the beauty of the gospel. So we have to see the gospel first to be able to focus on that. But I also wanna highlight my my mistake so that whether you're in your, your GC, whether you're in a DNA, whether you're listening to a preacher up here, you're always asking and you're always thinking, what did I learn about Jesus? Because if you're not learning about Jesus, you're actually not learning any, about anything that can truly transform you. And, and that's why as a church we're called Emmaus because it's where Jesus explains that idea to his, to his disciples. So here's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to make a quick review and kind of correction from last week to help us see the gospel. Then we're going to look for more of that gospel in chapter 2. And then we're going to connect that gospel to what we're calling our image problem, which is the name of the series over, over the next couple of months. Uh, so let's pray, and then uh, we'll jump right in. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for just the beauty of your creation, uh, the leaves, the sun, uh, just this the perfect weather outside, Lord. Um, I thank you that you bless us with that and we want to give you credit that all good gifts come from you, the Father of lights, Lord. Lord, you have ultimately gifted us with your presence and your son. I pray that as we look at a book that's almost 3,000 years old, that we would walk away knowing more about Jesus when we leave than when we first showed up, Lord. And we need your spirit. We ultimately need your spirit to reveal those things to us so that we can worship, adore, and be transformed by him. Thank you for um, just this opportunity uh, to talk about your beloved son. In your name I pray. Amen. Okay, so we're going to start with a review and correction. Then we're going to jump into more gospel, uh, and then we're going to relate it to our image problem. So it's on your sheet, review and correction, more gospel, in our image problem. And I thought a review and correction would be helpful because chapter one in the book of Isaiah kind of gives us an, uh, an overview of the whole book of Isaiah. So what we learn about the death and resurrection of Jesus in chapter one will actually help us understand the gospel in the rest of the book of Isaiah. Uh, so for reference to, I've kind of given you a little chart on your notes that connects some of the ideas uh, that we're going to walk through from chapter one of Isaiah um, so that we can just better understand this, so that we can better understand the death and resurrection of Jesus. And you can see at the top of the little chart that I listed Adam, Israel, and Jesus as as the son of God. Luke calls Adam the son of God. Hosea calls Israel the son of God. But in the first few verses of Isaiah, we kind of see the same thing in chapter 1. And we talked about it last week. Israel is God's child. We also talked about the fact that part of raising Israel as his son was placing Israel in the land to live with God. There was was no other nation that had God's house, no other nation that had Jerusalem, the very temple where the creator of the universe decided to take up residence. So God placed his son Israel in the land to live with God. But in chapter one, what we talked about last week, we get a a broken, bruised person, or we get a, a shack in a cucumber field. I don't know why it's a cucumber field, but we get this picture that shows up of God's son even though they live with the very creator of the universe, we get this picture that shows up of God's son is very, very broken in chapter one. And like you can see on your sheet, this is what happens to God's first son, Adam. He's placed in a land to walk with or live with God. And Adam, like Israel, ends up forgetting about God and Adam ends up broken. And we talk about, um, in theology, we talk about the fall or, or the fall of Adam You could say right here in Isaiah, we're talking about the fall of Israel, the other son. And if you think about Adam, what's the first thing Adam does when he realizes that he's broken? He's ashamed and he covers himself up and tries to hide from God. And that's exactly what Israel does in chapter one. They try to cover and hide their sins and their evil from God through sacrifices, through offerings, even through prayers. But God sees right through it and tells Israel that, that what's important is, is that they actually stop doing evil and listen and do good. God is telling Israel that they were not put in the land to do all of these different things. They were put in the land to spread the image of God to the world. And when they're doing evil, that's, that's literally the exact opposite of what it means to image God. So what does God do with his broken sons or his broken son who doesn't perfectly bear the image of God anymore? He casts them out of the land. Adam is cast out of Eden. Israel is cast out of their land. But the good news and the thing that we kind of ended on last week, the good news is with Adam is that even in God's judgment, God loves them and promises to restore both sons God promises Adam that a snake's head would be crushed and God promises Israel that a city will be restored. So both sons are judged, but at the same time, both sons are loved because of the promise of God to bring full restoration, to fix what was broken. Now, hopefully you're following me a little bit here, um, but if not, this is the key. This is like the takeaway point for this section. This pattern of a loved and judged son that leads to restoration is what helps us understand the gospel. This pattern of a loved and judged son that leads to restoration is what helps us better understand the death and resurrection of Jesus, the true and perfect son of God. The son who was loved and judged in his death and is actually accomplishing restoration in his resurrection. So if we connect that to Jesus, we can think about a temple in Israel where God is is present and living with his people, even in their sin, but now God lives with his people in the person of Jesus, which is why Matthew quotes Isaiah and says that Jesus will be called Emmanuel or God with us because it's not in a temple or in a city. It's in a real flesh and blood person. And if you you think the creator of the universe is going to show up, the creator is going to, of the universe is going to show up as a person. He would create some kind of body that wasn't broken, but that's not what God did. Jesus actually showed up. The Bible says in the flesh, which is like saying Jesus showed up with a broken body to deal with a broken world, just like you and me. And do we see Jesus like Adam or like Israel try and cover up what's broken? No, he he exposes himself to all the broken things in the world, all the suffering that's caused by our sin that ultimately leads up to the son being nailed to the cross, naked and uncovered. The perfect son voluntarily exposes himself to the judgment of God. And that's why the cross is the clearest Statement of the judgment and love of God. It's on the cross that God pours out his wrath on his son, but actually accomplishes the restoration promised to both Adam and Israel. The cross is where we see the true Son of God loved and judged to bring about real restoration. So what is so what is the whole book of Isaiah about? It's about a son of God who is loved and judged so that God can bring restoration. Isaiah is about the death and resurrection of the son of God. And Isaiah is written for you so that you would better understand the gospel. And the details from last week that we talked about, those are really important. And we're gonna continue through those things. We have to start with the fact that Isaiah was given to us so that we could better understand the death and resurrection of the perfect son of God. And if we miss that, if we've missed the point that Jesus and the apostles make, then we really risk missing the gospel itself. So we, so, we can't, so we can't miss that Isaiah is about the son of God who is loved and judged so that God can bring restoration. So here's what I'm asking. When we learn, as we go through this, we're going to spend the next couple of months in Isaiah. When we learn more about the details of Isaiah... Whether it's in your GC, whether it's a discussion at home, whether it's in your DNA small group, just ask, what am I learning as I read through the details of Isaiah? What am I learning about the death and resurrection of Jesus? I think we can do that. Uh, and I'm going to do my best through the spirit to kind of help us get there. Um, but I need you guys to tell me when I miss the boat on that. I need you guys to correct me. Um, can't just rely on my roommates for that, but I'm sure they'd be happy my wife included, to correct me. So I appreciate that. Um, so that's our review and correction from last week. So now in chapter two, we can look for more of Jesus. We can look for more gospel. And we'll actually, we'll actually understand more of the death and resurrection of Jesus through what Isaiah says about Jerusalem and about judgment. So we're going to start with Jerusalem. Um, we'll read the first a few verses in chapter two. Um, for the rest of the time, we'll just be in Isaiah, but chapter two verses one through three says, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah in Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, "Come." Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So here, here we are in a section where God is actually painting this picture of what full restoration of all the broken things of Israel, the son of God would look like. And this is actually, a small section where it talks about restoration. We get a a ton more of that towards the end of Isaiah, but we kind of right here uh, in chapter two and in chapter four, we get a glimpse of what God is doing to restore Israel. So what does the restoration of Jerusalem teach us about the gospel, about the death and resurrection of Jesus? Well, first you have to realize that that if it's written for us, it's not ultimately about a city in some Mediterranean country over on the other side of the globe. Like when, when God promised Adam to crush the head of the serpent, it's not like killing a snake would have fixed everything that Adam broke. Any more than it would be building a cool city in Jerusalem would fix everything that was broken. So it helps us to understand the purpose of Jerusalem and the temple that was in Jerusalem. They were built to be a place where God dwelled to draw all people to himself to worship him. But now in Isaiah's day, Jerusalem is filled with every kind of sin. It's broken, it's pathetic, it's not attracting anyone to God. So now we get a description of Jerusalem restored, fulfilling its original purpose as God's house where people worship and learn about God. And if we understand the purpose of Jerusalem, then we can ask, where does God live today now that Jesus has resurrected, now that Jesus has begun restoration through his resurrection, where where does God live today to draw all people to himself? And there's a couple ways we could answer that question. We could say in heaven, I think that's why Hebrews calls where God lives today. The book of Hebrews calls it the heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, and that's true, but equally as true, we can say that through the spirit, through our union with Jesus, Jesus, our creator actually lives in you and lives in me. Jesus lives in his people so that all peoples could learn about God and worship God. And that's why the the gathering of people who are united to Jesus is so important because we gather, we gather to worship because here is where God lives and where God is now worshiped, not in a physical city or a temple somewhere. You and I are gathered today experiencing the new Jerusalem that Isaiah talked about because now God doesn't live in a temple made with hands. He lives in his people and is worshiped and learned about in the gathering of those people. That's what the spirit does. And in the new Testament, that's how we see Jesus and his apostles actually talking about what Jerusalem is. In the book of Revelation, uh, John says that the new Jerusalem is the bride of the lamb, which is the church. It's It's another way of saying the gathered people of God. We add a lot of meaning to it, but church essentially just means an assembly or a gathering. John tells us that the restored Jerusalem is the gathering of those united by the Spirit to Jesus to learn and worship Jesus, which I think is pretty cool. You and I today, as we gather together, united to Jesus, we are the new Jerusalem that Isaiah was looking forward to 2,700 years ago. When Jesus is on this earth, he actually tells a woman who is asking him, hey, we worship over here, but the Jews say we should worship in Jerusalem. And he says, well, right now, we're right. The Jews do worship in Jerusalem. He says, but a day is coming, and it's kind of actually here because Jesus is already on the earth. A day is coming where we will no longer worship in Jerusalem. This is what Jesus says, but we'll worship the father in spirit and in truth. So Jesus said what Isaiah said. Jesus said what John said. Jesus is saying that the resurrection enables him through the spirit to draw all people to himself. So right here in Isaiah, this picture of a restored Jerusalem teaches us about what the resurrection of Jesus is accomplishing. It teaches us about the good news of what Jesus is doing today. Look at uh, verse 4 in Isaiah chapter 2. You can actually see the effects of the resurrection of Jesus. He says, he shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. So what happens when people gather united to Jesus to learn from and worship Jesus? Conflicts are resolved. Unity is had instead of strife. We have people listening to the truth instead of deciding the truth for themselves because God is deciding disputes. And that's why Jesus says we worship in spirit and in truth. It's that kind of worship that brings people together. It's that kind of worship that causes nation to not lift up sword against nation. And I feel like a lot of us have had some kind of experience with this and and some more dramatic than others. I think about when, you know, one of the more dramatic times in my life is when I first got married. Uh, I was actually converted. God united himself to me uh, like f- four weeks into our, our first year of marriage. And Bridget actually didn't become a believer uh, for another year and a half. So it was, it was kind of a difficult first year of marriage for us to say the least. Um, but after, after Jesus rescued Bridget through the spirit, by uniting himself to her, it's hard to overstate the difference between being married to Bridget when she was not united to Jesus and being married to Bridget today. Talk about deciding disputes. Um, As we both worship Jesus together and submit to the truth of Jesus, Bridget and I have become more and more united to each other. And it's, it's honestly a little unreal I'm not sure I would believe it if I had not experienced it myself. But this is, what, this is what the power of the resurrection does for the people of Jesus. And what if we believed what's being said about the power of the resurrection of Jesus? What if we really believed that this new restored Jerusalem, the people united to Jesus where God lives in us, those people gathered to worship and learn the teaching of Jesus is actually how conflicts could be resolved in our culture today. How would that, how would that change our approach to marriages? How would that change our approach to friendships? How would that change our approach to our children or to our neighbors or to the city around us? The question is, do you believe that the gospel of the resurrection has the power to restore all things today? Well, you should, because this is Isaiah giving us more gospel, more understanding of the resurrection of the son of God through this picture of a restored Jerusalem. This is the good news that Isaiah wrote for you to believe. And what's interesting is that the next section actually gives us more gospel or more good news through judgment. And it's a little hard to believe, but in this next section, with all, with all the, the judgment language that Arwen led, read for us, Isaiah is actually trying to help us understand the death of Jesus and the judgment of his son and the fact that it puts to shame every other solution that we go to in order to try to build our own Jerusalem, in order to try to accomplish our own restoration. The judgment shows us more gospel Because it shows us that nothing outside of the death and resurrection of Jesus can actually bring true restoration. Look at how God describes Israel, his son, in verses 6 through uh, 8, chapter 2. In verse 6, he says, For you've rejected your people, the house of Jacob. Why? Because they are full of things from the east, and of the fortune tellers, like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their, Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there's no end to their treasure. Their land is filled with horses and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the works of their hands to what their own fingers have made. Here, God is describing the condition of Israel and why he's going to cast his son out of their land. They filled the dwelling place of God with all of these things that are actually drawing them away from God. All the things that God actually warned them about, specifically when he put them in the land, making deals with nations around them, riches, big armies, and kind of the sum of it is idols. Because idols are things that their own fingers have made that Israel turned to in order to try to bring about their own restoration, in order to try to get that, that picture of a restored Jerusalem without God. So whether it's jobs not working, crops not working out, relationships not working out, in their context, they have armies surrounding their city, we do these things, we make these idols that we turn to, that we create ourselves instead of God to find the restoration that only God can give. So Israel's full of this stuff and actually repeats that filled word four times in this section because they're so full of all these things that distract them from God. All these things that actually keep them from turning to God for the restoration that they need. So God sees all these things that his son Israel goes to in order to sort of fix their issues And he tells them what he's going to do about these things. Look at what he says in verses 12 through 17. He says, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft, And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. So, what God is saying, He's saying, you go to all these things to find restoration instead of me. You go to things I've made, the things that I've made to solve your problems, the oaks, the cedars, the mountains, and you go to things that you've made to solve your problems. You know, high towers are like representations uh, of the accomplishments of mankind. They may not have Trump across theirs. They probably would have had like Ahaz is another uh, king that would have done something like that. Ships of Tarshish are like Old Testament versions of of Walmart and Amazon. It just kind of represents trade. And the beautiful craft could be seen as the arts. Maybe a Netflix would be a good example or some of the streaming services. God is saying to his people right here, he's saying that my people go to all these things in the world to solve their problems, but they don't don't go to me because they're so full of this stuff. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna demonstrate to the entire world that the things in the world or all this lofty pride of man or all the accomplishments of mankind can't actually bring the restoration that everybody is looking for. So God has a day where he's gonna prove that to us this idea of the day of the Lord. So in verse 19 and 21, he repeats this phrase that gives us an idea of what's going to happen on that day. He says, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. He says, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. And it sounds kind of scary. Um, and it is a little bit. But I think our first instinct when we read stuff like that is to go to this like apocalyptic in time into the world event. And I obviously enjoy the book of Revelation as much as anyone, but I think if we jump to the very end of the world, when we hear that kind of stuff, we're actually completely missing the point. We actually miss where God has already poured out his wrath in full strength We actually miss where God has already made foolish all the things the world deems as wise because we miss the death and the judgment of the loved son on the cross. It's on the cross where we see a beat up, bruised, naked Jesus nailed to a tree, accomplishing more restoration than anything in this world could come up with. And it's at the cross where God pours out his wrath in full strength and shows us that nothing we do do can actually bring about the restoration and the resurrection that comes from the death of Jesus. It's on the cross where the day of the Lord begins. And this is Isaiah trying to get us to believe the truth that the death of Christ actually proves that every human institution, every human invention, every peaceful experience of nature, everything that we go to for restoration outside of Jesus is actually foolishness. This is Isaiah trying to point us to the judgment so that we can see the wisdom in the death and the resurrection of the true son of God. So today, I hope you have some things to write down about Jesus from the book of Isaiah. It's kind of the goal. Jerusalem shows us that God is restoring all things in the resurrection of his son. Here, judgment shows us that God is making foolish the wisdom of this world through the death of his son. And we're going to kind of see these themes throughout Isaiah over the next couple of months. And we're going to find that, that we, like Israel, that we as sons and daughters of God, ultimately we have an, an image problem is the phrase that we're using. But we can't, we can't stop at the problem. We need to see the beauty of the gospel. We need to believe in what the death and resurrection of Jesus accomplished so that we can be transformed more and more into the image of that son, into that perfect image. But see, it's not, it's not just about changing. It's about admiring the beauty of the perfect image of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Even in the book of Isaiah, you and I united to Jesus we already share in that perfect image of God. So much so that we're called, we're we're told to consider each other already as new creations in Christ. Another way the New Testament says that we're called to, we're, we're actually commanded to think of ourselves, to think of ourselves as already dead to sin, already passed through the judgment with Christ and alive to God in Christ. Or, as Isaiah would put it in verse 5, Isaiah says, Oh, house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And that's the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus in the book of Isaiah. A book written for you, and a book written for me, so that we could behold his beauty and be transformed. Thanks be to God. For this unspeakable gift. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, I thank you that we can stand in your Son. We can stand perfect in the exact imprint of your nature in Christ. We can come before a holy God and you love us as your children because of what your Son has already accomplished. Um, Lord, I pray as we move through Isaiah, we would grow more and more in in understanding what Christ has done so that we could just be more and more impressed with who he is, Um, be more and more enamored with the beauty of the true son of God. Thank you for the opportunity to even consider these things uh, and to worship you this morning, Lord. In your name I pray, amen.